Uh, as we start today, this has been a, this has been a difficult week, uh, probably for a lot of people. And last week, some things that I shared with you, I shared with you a lot of very crucial aspects of the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And I share with you a lot about some of my frustrations with what's going on, not just in the world, but in the church. And the reason I'm so frustrated over it is because this is not how things are supposed to be. And as we study the Holy Spirit and what He's supposed to do in our lives and how we will respond as followers of Christ, when there's a a disparity between those two things, then it leads to conflict and frustration within you. It should lead to conflict and frustration within you. Because God wants us to be in the world as His hands and His feet, being His presence in a hurting world. And when that is not happening, then we begin to feel like something is wrong and the Holy Spirit is there nudging us saying something is not right. We need to address it. And so last Sunday night, as I'm sure you are all aware, a man, for whatever reason we don't know, opened fire on a crowd of 20,000 people killing scores of people, wounding scores more. And this is probably the worst part of these events is the fact that we are just used to it. It's just another shooting. Now, if you've got somebody that's affected and there were some people in our area that were affected and one young lady from Cleveland that was killed in this event... If you're affected in that way, then it has a bit, little bit stronger pull on you. It's got a, it hurts you a little more, and it affects you in a greater way. But for many of us that don't have a person that we know that's there, it's just another shooting. And that is not the heart that Christ has given us. And so what I want to share with you is not how can we can... And, and Let's <laughs> begin the tongues up here. It's not that kind of Holy Spirit sermon today. All right. Not that what I want to walk away from today is how do we keep those things from happening? Because let's be honest, there is evil in the world. And the reality is we are only aware of a small part of that evil. When we see these terrible acts, those small things make us aware of the terrible things going on in the world. But there's so much more that we're not aware of. But what we can do is we can be on mission with the things that the Holy Spirit is telling us to be on mission about. And as I shared with you last week, the Holy Spirit's mission and His mission within us is not that we get to experience God in all the wonderful ways that we can. And so we can say we are going to heaven and we are excited and happy that we get to walk with Jesus. Those, those, those should be important things to us. But the mission that he has us on is that other people find out about that too. And so we have got to be a people that are taking the gospel around the world, not just in word, but indeed in action. And in a world where a shooting is just another thing, another event, and we just say, well, the world's just, the world's just going to hell. That is not the response that Christ would have, and that is not the response that we as his followers should have either. Instead, it is a call for us to continue to seek the work of God in this world and for us to be a part of it. One of the hallmarks of someone that's moved by the Holy Spirit, Scripture tells us, is that they will be a peacemaker in the world. And so I want to encourage you as we are angry when these things happen, we want to to see things change. 
We want to place blame, and we want the people that are to blame to pay dearly, understand that what Christ wants in us is to be peacemakers in this world, that we are all sinners in need of a Savior. And you and I have an opportunity to share that. I want to begin, if that wasn't a beginning, I'm going to begin again. And I want to share with you just the last few things I shared with you last week as a lead-in to today. And I'm going to ask you to do some emotional work today. And in this emotional work, I'm going to warn you now, it's not going to be easy. It's not going to be comfortable. And if you're successful, you're probably not going to be real happy with me. So I'm going to ask you to do some emotional work today. So hang on, and I'll tell you what that is in just a moment. The title of our series is called Shadow Mission. And I did not come up with that. I wish I could tell you I came up with that. I dreamed that up. It was great. It was wonderful. It's all mine. I'm going to write a book and sell it, and then I'm going to retire. That's not what happened. This is a book by John Ortberg called Overcoming Your Shadow Mission. And while this series is not going to be just walking through the book, there are some key pieces of it that match our study of the Holy Spirit that I want you to to grasp and to understand and to take in and to adjust your life accordingly. His definition of a shadow mission is this. A shadow mission is an authentic mission that has been derailed. What is our authentic mission? Spread the gospel. It's a a very simple way of saying that is the mission. So a a shadow mission is an authentic mission that has been derailed often in imperceptible ways, which is what I believe has happened to the church over the last several generations. Part of what makes the shadow mission so tempting is that it usually is so closely related to our gifts and passions. It's not 180 degrees off track. It's just 10 degrees off track. And I don't, if you've ever been to the beach and you've gone out, we, we like to go and jump the waves and ride on boogie boards and things like that. But whenever there's a current, what happens after about 15 minutes? You're like way down the beach. Now, each time you come in, you don't go drastically down the beach. But over time, being off just a little bit, pushing you down just a little bit, pushes you way far from where you started. And that is the idea of shadow mission. It's not that you're going to go out and, and, and Donna here is going to create a new cult. Now, I believe Donna has what it takes to create a cult. She's a likable person. She likes people. People like to be around her. If Donna wanted to create a cult, she could. It might be to worship, you know, a motorcycle. I don't know. And knowing Donna, it could be anything. But, but that is not the kind of shadow mission I'm, I'm concerned about or that you should be concerned about. There are people who go way off into the distance. But most of us are not going to be that person. We are going to be the person that misses it just a little. And over time, we're going to end up so far from where God wants us that we feel lost again, even though we're supposed to be found in Christ. And so our shadow mission, what it tends to do is it takes us off course just a little bit. And the emotional work I want you to begin doing today, although I'm not going to assume you will complete it today, but if you have not been on an intentional journey to determine what your shadow mission is, because let me tell you, every one of you, myself included, has one. I want you to begin doing the emotional work of rooting out what is that thing that I by default fall into as my mode of living life because that is often where your shadow mission is going to be found what i wanted you to to leave with last week was these realities one you are loved by god with a magnificent love 
We talk about shadow mission. We're not doing this out of shame, blame, and guilt. It's for us to understand God loves us. And God wants to be active in our lives. And the most fulfilling adventure of your life is one walking in step with Christ and with the Holy Spirit. So that he's not only filling us, but he's using us. You are loved by God with a magnificent love. He, my, my intention and, and God's intention in all of this is not that you would walk away feeling guilt. Jesus died to erase our guilt. But we do want to be aware of the things that push us off of the path that God wants for us. The second thing I wanted to leave with you is that God wants to empower you to change the life of someone around you. And every time, your shadow mission is not going to be focused on someone else, but it will be focused on you in some way. I'll get to that in a minute. What I know, and if you've ever experienced the Holy Spirit leading you in your life, you will know that you will not find a greater thrill, excitement, or adventure than following Jesus and living through the power of the Holy Spirit. Once you experience it, you cannot live without it. Now, you may not constantly, every moment of your life, live knowing that the Holy Spirit is doing something at that moment. However, when you begin to experience that, you need it more because this is what you were created for. And once you experience that, it's not easy to give up. But with all of those truths, you will be tempted to accept your shadow mission every step of the way. I'm going to share with you three Characters in Scripture that demonstrate a shadow mission. Two that fell prey to theirs, and one that shows us how we can fight ours. Whenever I was reading this week, my, my own personal readings this week, I was in Galatians. which I love Paul's letters to Galatians, Ephesians, and Philippians. But Galatians, this struck me, and I, I've read this so many times before, and I shared with you last week in our upcoming series called Protestant. We're going to be talking about the Reformation. We're going to be talking about how do we as followers of Christ protest. We are, as followers of Jesus, natural protesters in the world, which is going to be interesting as we weave what it looks like to protest and be a peacemaker at the same time. But one of the protests that we have to recognize is that throughout history, there have been great forces at work to corrupt the gospel. And I believe that the most successful Attempts to corrupt the gospel have not been the kind that have tried to depose Jesus. Not been the kind that have said we need to worship some other God altogether. But it is that just stinking, that slipping in and changing and adjusting the gospel just enough that it moves us off course. And I believe one of those events that I'm going to share with you in that series, I believe the very first one, the most devastating one we've experienced since the birth of, of Christ was Constantine. And I'm going to share with that with you in a few weeks. I, as you can tell, the second time I brought it up, so I'm, I'm, I'm really passionate about the fact that the church has been corrupted over the years. And much of the way the church works today is because of what happened way back then. But we'll get to that. But this is not the first time that that happened. In Galatians chapter One, Paul talks about the fact that there's already a group of people attempting to do this very thing, adjust the gospel in such a way that people miss the true essence of it. It says, verse 1, I'm sorry, chapter 1, verse 6, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ 
and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you receive, let him be accursed. I'm, he, what he's saying here is, I'm really serious about this. This is big time stuff. This is a real problem. This is going to hurt people and it's going to lead them away from Christ. Verse 10 says, for I for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. You will constantly, this is not in Scripture, but you will constantly be tempted to do this very thing. You will be constantly tempted to distort the gospel in your life. This is the reality that you and I have to struggle with every single day. Every single day, we are going to be tempted to live in a way other than what Christ gave his life for. And the problem becomes when we cannot tell the difference. Now, there are clearly times that I know I am deviating from God's plan, and I'm okay with that. Because this area that I want to deviate to right now is more attractive than Christ is in my life. Now, I know pastors are not supposed to be that way, but guess what? Pastors are that way because this is a human condition you and I struggle with. But most of the time, that is not what's going to happen once you have experienced the work of the Holy Spirit. What's going to happen most of the time is that there's going to be a subtle change that takes the focus off of what Christ intends and it begins to be distorted within our lives and it changes the way we see things. That is our shadow mission. When we accept a shadow mission, we are distorting the gospel in our own lives. Now, I don't have to probably ask how many of you have ever felt like the life that you're living just doesn't make sense. Because probably most of you would say at one time or the other, yeah, I know how that feels. I'm not going to promise you that if you're a good Christian and you come to church every single week and you tithe and you serve and you do all kinds of great spiritual religious activities that you will never feel that way again. And some people present the gospel in just that way. If you will give your heart to Christ, your life will just make sense all the problems will go away and you are just going to live life full and happy and complete and excited and, and God's just going to bless you and make everything work out your way. The problem is there's not a single piece of evidence that that ever happened to anyone. Not even Christ. So one of the things we're going to look at next week is that Jesus was constantly tempted with a shadow mission up to the moment where he prayed to his Father in heaven, if you can take this cup from me, let's do it. If I don't have to go through with this, if there's another way, let's do it. And yet Jesus went through with the mission. That temptation for the shadow mission did not take over, and he stayed focused on his mission, which is, I know it's sometimes difficult when we use Jesus as an example because we think, well, you know, Jesus was God. And I'm not. But yet, 
We know these things about him because he wanted us to, to use him as an example, that we would become imitators of him. One of the stories I want to share with you is a story that Ortberg uses in his book. I want to bring out a few other things that he didn't. But it's the story of Samson. I'm sure you're familiar with this story. Samson was a judge, and we find his story in around Judges 14 through 16, 17 is about the time we read about his story. In Israel, this is the time after Moses. This is the time before Saul, where the judges are somewhat ruling the nation of Israel. And whenever the nation of Israel would get in trouble... They would cry out to God, and God would send them a rescuer. And this rescuer would be a judge, and there are many judges that we read about in the Old Testament. There are men and women, judges that come forward, and they they take on a very unique role in the nation. And they take on a role where not only are they some kind of champion to lead them out of the trouble that they have, but they become the national leader. I mean, they're, they're the most popular person in the nation at that time, everyone knows who they are, and they are not just making incremental change among their community, but they're actually leading the whole nation to great change. And, and Samson is one of those that we read about. He's one of the more fun ones to read about when you're young, but when you're older and you begin to really read Samson, you realize we are all just like Samson. We struggle with the same things he struggles with. It's just that all of his failures are shouted for the whole world for all time to see through Scripture. Samson was promised to his parents, and they told him, God told them that if they would dedicate him to his service, to the things that he would do in the world, and he would take at the time, which was the Nazarite vow, that God would gift him, bless him, and give him an enormous power to deliver the nation. And when you would do that and take this Nazarite vow, there were three key things that you would commit to doing. It wasn't something you would typically do for your entire life. It was normally just a, a time of renewal or a time of recommitment to God or a time of demonstrating to God that I am devoting myself to you. But there were three primary things that you would do to take this vow. And one is that you would never touch a dead carcass. It was unclean. You would just not come in contact with it. You would remain clean in that regard. A second was, is that you would not drink wine or alcohol. You would keep yourself pure and you would keep yourself clear-minded and clear-headed so you wouldn't allow yourself to drink anything. And the, the third thing that you would do is that you would not cut your what? Hair. You know the story. I'm not going to read the entire story, but there are some bits and pieces that I want you to see because Samson is one of the first things, I, first stories I want to share with you of what happens when we allow the world to overcome the calling of God within our lives and we begin to move off center just a bit. Samson gives us a great example of what happens when we move off center just a little bit. Keep those three vows in mind and let me just walk you through this story. And then I want you to read to you the last part of this story in full. If we look at Judges chapter 14, verse 1, it says, Samson went down to Timnah, and at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Now, you need to understand that at this time in the nation of Israel, you were not to marry anyone outside of your own people. You were God's chosen people, and you were to intermarry within God's chosen people so that you would keep the bloodline pure. It was the way that they continued to demonstrate they were the children and the 
clan of God, that he was watching over them, his chosen people. Now, whenever someone would conquer Israel, often what they would do is they would try to intermingle, interbreed within their own natives. And you would think, well, why would they do that? I mean, they've conquered these people. Why do they want to bring them into the bloodline? And and it's not because they were trying to bring the Jews into their bloodline, but they were trying to corrupt the, the Jewish bloodline. And so there were times in their history that that would happen and they would not be obedient to what God had called them to. Jesus, by the way, completely did away with that. To which we are all equal before him. There, there is no separation in any way between us and God. We are all equal before him. But that was not the case at this time. And so Samson should be looking for someone to marry out of Israel. But instead... He saw one of the daughters of the Philistines, which is who he was supposed to deliver Israel from. Verse 2 says, he came up and he told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. But his father and mother said to him, is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all your people that you must go to take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, get her for me for what you finished the verse. Get her for me for... She is right in my eyes. And this is the key to your shadow mission. It is right in our own eyes. Now, I think if we were perfectly honest and we felt perfectly secure in sharing our faults, if we walked up here one at a time and said, would you just tell a story of a time when something was right in your own eyes and it didn't work out well? I bet every one of us has that story, right? But today we don't have the time, and I'm not sure you all would feel comfortable doing that, nor would probably I. But the reality is that the seed of every shadow mission is this. It was right in our own eyes. He goes on after wanting to marry this Philistine, which doesn't work out, by the way. We jump down to verse 5. Samson went down with his father and mother to Timnah, and they came to the vineyards of Timnah. And behold, a young lion came toward him roaring. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. I just can't imagine what that would feel like. But this is exactly what it looks like to be filled with the Holy Spirit today. You see a lion come with you, and then the Holy Spirit just rushes into you. Wouldn't that be just an incredible feeling? And yet, this is what is promised those who follow Christ. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. But he did not tell his father or his mother what he had done. Then he went down and talked with the woman, and she was right in Samson's eyes. After some days, he returned to take her. And he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion. And behold, there was a swarm of bees in the body of the lion and honey. He scraped it out into his hands and went on, eating as he went. And he came to his father and mother and gave some to them, and they ate. But he did not tell them that he had scraped the honey from the carcass of the lion." which is where Samson breaks vow number one. You're not supposed to touch a dead carcass. makes you unclean before God, and yet the honey was sweet. 
It was good in his own eyes. And so he scraped it and broke that vow. What we'll read, if you continue on, we're not going to read all this because we don't have time today, is that Samson then wants to get married to the Philistine woman, and so he throws a big party, and Scripture says it was a party as was accustomed in that day, which means there was a lot of wine, which is where Samson broke vow number two. Now, you're walking through, you've killed this lion, you're pretty impressed with yourself, you're pretty excited about what God has done through you, and you're hungry, and here's some honey, and I mean, who would believe this story? In fact, this is such a a great event for him that later, he's trying to trick the Philistines, and he tells them a riddle about this very thing. He's so excited with himself about what he has done to this lion, and he scrapes the honey out and eats it. That's normal, isn't it? You had a long day. I'm tired. This looks good to me. I don't think God would really be okay with this, but I'm okay with it for right now because I'm, I'm hungry and it looks good. Although I don't know that I would want to eat honey out of a dead lion, but he did. And that's probably why he didn't tell his parents about it. Hey, yeah, that's good, honey, isn't it? Yeah, you want to know, you know where I got it? Things fell through with this particular woman. And so then he meets the girl of his dreams, Delilah. And I just want to read these next few verses. And I want you to listen to try to figure out what is the shadow mission of Samson. After this, he loved a woman in the valley of Sork, whose name was Delilah. And the lords of the Philistines came up to her and said to her, seduce him. And see where his great strength lies. Why? Because he's killed thousands of them by now. Everything they've tried has failed. And so now they see they've got an in through Delilah to figure out how to destroy Samson. Uh, Seduce him and see where his great strength lies and by what means we may overpower him, that we may bind him to humble him. And we will give you 1,100 pieces of silver. So Delilah said to Samson, please tell me where your great strength lies and how much might, or how you might be bound, the one, that one could subdue you. Samson said to her, if they bind me with seven fresh bowstrings that have not been dried, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. Then the lords of the Philistines brought up to her seven fresh bowstrings that had not been dried, and she bound him with them. Now she had men lying in ambush in an inner chamber, and she said to him, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he snapped the bowstrings as a thread of flax snaps when it touches the fire. So the secret of his strength was not known. Now most people at this point go, hmm. These are those things that make you say, hmm. You remember that? Hmm. That's awfully coincidental. Verse 10, then Delilah said to Samson, behold, you have mocked me and told me lies. Please tell me how you might be bound. Now, if Samson hasn't figured out what's going on here, Samson's not the brightest bulb in the pack. He knows what's going on. He's a smart guy. Keep in mind, Samson is the national hero. He's in charge politically and militarily in the nation of Israel. He's not just some guy that likes to work out. I mean, he's a powerful man. 
Behold, you have mocked me and told me lies. Please tell me how you might be bound. And he said to her, If they bind me with new ropes that have not been used, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. So Delilah took new ropes and bound him with them and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And the men lying in ambush were in an inner chamber. But he snapped the ropes off his arms like a thread. Then Delilah said to Samson, Until now you have mocked me and told me lies. Tell me how you might be bound. And he said to her, Well, if you weave seven locks of my head in a web and fasten it tight with the pen, then I shall become weak and be like any other man, which you know he's just playing with her now. He's having fun. Are you getting an idea of what his shadow mission may be? He has been called to be the savior of Israel, to deliver them from their foes, the Philistines, from underneath their thumb, from all of the raids, from the killing, from the war that they're in. He is called to deliver them. And instead, what is he doing? He's playing games with them. And who wins in these games? Samson. Every time. Samson. It gives you a clue to what his shadow mission is. See, he has a mission. He's engaging the Philistines, but not in the way God has empowered him to do. Until now you have mocked me and told me lies. Tell me how you might be bound. Seven locks of hair. The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he woke from his sleep and pulled away the pen, the loom, and the web. She said to him, how can, how can you say I love you? Well, now she's good. She's smart, too. When your heart is not with me, why will you not let me kill you, Samson? Is basically what she's saying here. This is not a healthy relationship. You have mocked me these three times, and you have not told me where your great strength lies. And when she pressed him hard with her words day after day and urged him, she, I mean, nagged him to death. His soul was vexed to death. Now, that is a nagging wife. Let me tell you something. When you are vexed to death, that's bad news. You, you are not in a healthy relationship. Verse 17, he told her all his heart, and he said to her, A razor has never come upon my head, which is vow number three. A razor has never come upon my head, for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me, and I will become weak and be like any other man. When Delilah saw that he had told her all his heart, she sent and called the lords of the Philistines, saying, Come up again, for he has told me all his heart. Then the lords of the Philistines came up to her and brought the money in their hands, and she made him sleep on her knees. She called a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his head. Then she began to torment him, and his strength left him. And she said, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as any other time and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. And the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze shackles. And he ground at the mill in the prison. But the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaved, thereby restoring his ability for vow number three. See, what happened with Samson was that Samson was enamored with his greatness. I'm a national hero. You know, when he walks out, he's got the tight clothes on. People are looking at him going, man, this guy, he is it. And he began to believe the press about him. 
And along the way, what he began to believe was that the mission of God was less important than the mission in his own heart, which was to be envied, to have glory, for people to look at him and not see God, but to see Samson, man's man. One of the things that we have to understand when we see how God begins to work in you is I see so many people that fail to believe God could do something significant in their lives. And there's a number of reasons for that. One one reason is I've screwed up. (laughs) You know, I've messed up too many times, and so God can't do anything in my life. Another one is I'm just not good at anything. And, And somehow we equate what we are naturally able to do on our own with somehow whether God would would actually ever try to do anything through us as if God could not empower you just like he empowered Samson. And so we just say, you know, I'm not really good at anything. And we see that throughout great people in Scripture where they, they respond to God's call to do great things with, but, but God, I'm not good at this. And yet God still called them. And so if you're in this room, you need to understand that God is not just leaving you where you are so that you can just exist until you die and get to go to heaven and ride on your your plush cloud in the sky with your little harp. Because that's what many people, though they would not say it, believe about their faith is that nothing is going to change in them until they die, which is not a really exciting gospel to me. Nothing happens until I die. What if I'm wrong? What happens when I die and it doesn't happen the way I thought it was and and I've really lost everything at that point? But instead, God is calling us, and when he calls us, he gifts us, just like he gifted Samson. Now, he may or may not gift you with long, flowing, attractive hair. I don't have that. I have less hair now than I had before. It has nothing to do with the Nazarite vow, but it's moving back. He may not gift you with the kind of strength that when you walk in the room, all the other guys in the room look at you and go, whoa, uh, <laughs> wow, that guy is like a real man. He may not gift you with the ability to get in front of a camera and everybody go, wow, they are so well-spoken. They are so smart. They are so good at debating or arguing. That may not be what he gifts you at. But God will gift you. But the shadow mission comes into play. And the shadow mission came in play with Samson when Samson received a great gift, but he did not have the character to sustain it. Let me read you just a paragraph. And if you haven't read this book, there's a lot more that I'm not going to cover that's in the book if you want to pick it up. Talking about giftedness and character. This is what Ortberg says. Character determines our capacity to be with God. Let that soak in. Character determines our capacity to be with God, to experience God, and to know God. It determines our ability to love and relate to other people. All that is part of our character. Character being who are we and our innermost, most true self. That is our character. When we are called to imitate Jesus or to be imitators of Jesus, we are not being called to have his giftedness or his role. 
Rather, we are striving for his character. Giftedness is good, but it's not the greatest good. It's important to be clear on this because we live in a culture that idolizes giftedness. And if, if you're paying attention, if you're doing the emotional work today of trying to figure out your Saturn mission, this may be where it lies, right here. A culture that idolizes giftedness. This is the way in our culture that we get the stuff our culture tells us we ought to want. Giftedness is the path to the good stuff. Giftedness is what makes other people look at you and say, wow, it puts people on magazine covers. Therefore, we are tempted to put more energy into wanting and enhancing our giftedness than paying attention to what is going on in our character and just slowing down and asking God to reform our character. When we idolize giftedness, we often end up envying other people's giftedness. I see someone else who is more gifted than I am in some area, and I wish that I had their gift, or I wish that they didn't have it. Their giftedness kind of sticks in my craw. The desire for good character, however, never leads to envy. This is a crucial understanding, a change in the way that we understand the church, ourselves, our calling, how God works, and what our value is in this world and in the kingdom. Because I will tell you that I struggle with this probably more than anyone else in the room, looking at the giftedness of others and thinking, gosh, I wish I was as good as them at that. And what naturally happens when you find somebody else that you just think, wow, they're so much better than me, and I really want to be good at that. Our natural response is begin to find as many faults with them as we can. Yeah, they're a really good preacher, but I bet you he's having an affair with his secretary. <laughs> That's maybe a leap. But we'll find other things. You know, he really shouldn't have used that illustration. Now, if you get pastors in the room talking about how to preach, I'm, I'm going to tell you, we'll put you to sleep in a heartbeat because nobody cares about the things that we care about. And we'll sit around and we'll go, did you see his alliteration? It was amazing. It was, it was from God. The Holy Spirit blessed that alliteration. And you're thinking, what's alliteration? That's what happens when we hold up giftedness. Now, let me just ask you and, and give me some feedback. Where do you see, we won't say ourselves because, you know, we're spiritual, but everybody else. Where do you see us idolizing giftedness? What kind of giftedness do we idolize in our culture? Athletics? Athletics? Absolutely. Entertainment? Entertainment? Or entertainers? Somebody else said something else. Looks? Wealth? That's a big one, isn't it? Power? Power? Yeah. Yeah. We look at people that get these things and we're like, wow, why don't I have these things? Within the church, you see, we, we're spiritual in the church. We just think about why don't we have more people that come? Why don't more people come into my Bible study? Why don't we have more people who want to serve? Why don't we have more people that, that want to lead worship? Why don't we have bigger buildings? Why don't we have prettier buildings? Why don't we have a room for every possible thing we could ever do in life in our building that we can just do it there and not have to go anywhere else? Because that's, I'll tell you, how many churches think. 
We look at giftedness instead of character, but it's in character that we actually imitate Christ. Now, I'm not going to say I haven't tried, but I have yet to walk on water. I would like for you to think I could, but I can't. There there are things that Jesus did that he's not asking me to do. But he is asking me to emulate his character. And when we begin to do that, we create the fertile soil for the Holy Spirit to do something amazing in us. This is why character is so important. This is why when we have sermons that we need to talk, this is the kind of stuff we talk about. And now it's fun to talk about history. It's fun to talk about all those other people's problems. But whenever we are really getting to the meat of the matter, it's our character. Because here's what I know about an authentic follower of Christ. If the only way you grow is through my sermons, there's something wrong with your faith. Because Scripture never said, once you know Christ, find a really good pastor if you want to grow. That's not what he said. That is not what Jesus said. What Jesus said was, is I am going to send another helper. And that helper, the Holy Spirit, is going to open up all these things for you. And he gave us scripture so that we could learn and we could grow. And so if one person, one believer in some place where there's no believers at all, which it it does happen, but not very often, certainly not for us, but if one person, Believers, all by themselves, has the Holy Spirit. They will grow in their faith. It's not dependent on the ability for someone to communicate in an entertaining way. That's the story of Samson. His character could not hold the giftedness God had given him. If you're a person who is gifted, if you're a go-to person, people come to you for lots of, of stuff, if you have a lot of responsibility and you have a pretty good reputation and, and, and people see you as a big dog, then I would say you need to be doubly concerned about your character because your giftedness will take you places that your character will not be able to sustain you. But if you are focused on your character, that will not happen. And instead, your giftedness begins to be used for what it's supposed to be used for, God's purposes. This is the first time we see a shadow mission. The very first time we see a shadow mission in Scripture is with the very first people. That's why I'm confident in saying we all struggle with this. Adam and Eve, Genesis chapter 3. See if you can figure this shadow mission out. The serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, You may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes... And that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And the eyes of both were opened. And they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. The man and his wife hid themselves in the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. 
What was their shadow mission? Just exercise your brains this morning. I know you're tired and it's raining. Seeking wisdom, that could be one way to see it. I think it's be like God. Why should we worship God when we can be it? And that is the root of all sin. That is it. I know enough. I'm worthy for my entire life focus to be about me. Where God says your entire life focus should be about Him. But yet our constant temptation is that it will be about us. Some of the symptoms of a shadow mission that you will find if you're wondering if you're on one right now. One is a chronic sense of soul dissatisfaction. Now, you will know if you are having a chronic sense of soul dissatisfaction. In order to have a chronic sense of soul dissatisfaction, you have to have a sense of soul health. If you've never been healthy, you'll never know that you're not. But if you've ever experienced soul health, then whenever that begins to wane, you will, you will experience a dissatisfaction. You will become irritable. You will be frustrated. You will say, something's not right. This is not right. You will begin to say things like, God, why are you not talking to me. I don't know what God wants from me. I don't know what God's will is for me. Those are the soul dissatisfaction comments that you will make when you are on a shadow mission because you will recognize that I am now separating from God and it will not feel good. It's an indicator that you're on a shadow mission. Another one are, are, is emotional indicators like irritability, lack of gratitude or joy, impatience, stagnation, just questioning why you're living the life that you're living. A third, and again, I didn't come up with these. This is from John Ortberg. A sense of smugness, exclusiveness, and self-congratulatory pride. Which, I'll be honest, that's one of mine. I do that. And that was a good sermon, Mark. I love it when you all tell me I did a good sermon. Now, I don't mean I don't want you to ever tell me again. But there are times when I, I just, I can, I love to walk out of here feeling like I did it without God. I love it because it feeds that same sin, sin nature that Adam and Eve had. I'm good. I can do it all on my own. I don't need anybody. And if you're a man in the room, this is probably your greatest one too. We do not want to feel like we need anybody or anything. And your shadow mission is often going to be wrapped up in your pride, just like mine is. Busyness at unimportant tasks. Ooh. Relationships become superficial. Self-aggrandizement. In other words, my gifts are used not to glorify God, but to glorify myself, which is what Samson did. It's what I want to do in my own life. Lack of authenticity. Running on empty because you're not experiencing God's work in your life. You're thinking through doing the emotional homework of, well, what is my shadow mission? Because you all have one. I have one. At least one. These are his top ten lists of shadow missions. One, just give me home, health, and a hefty 401k. Now, these are not things you would ever admit to. Second one is busy, busy, busy. You know why we like to be busy, right? It's because it means we're important. We're valuable. 
So many people need me. It makes my pride swell. Third one, I don't care who's in charge as long as it's me. Again, we would never admit to this. Shadow mission is something that we don't want people to know about. Fourth one, show me the money. Fifth one, it's all about me, which really could sum all these up. Number six, maintaining hidden addictions. I would, I would add to that. I'm spending my life proving that my life is worse than, worse than yours. Do you know those people? They're always on Facebook telling you how bad things are. And if someone else says how bad their life is, they'll chime in with, oh, yeah, well, let me tell you what's going on with me. They're always trying to one-up each other with how bad they are. Number seven, I'll think about it tomorrow. Procrastination. Eight, I'm looking nice by avoiding conflict. Not anybody's in here? Refuse to deal with what I need to deal with. I just want to look nice. Number nine, climb the ladder first. Put people second. Number 10, shop till you drop. Or maybe in today's vernacular, spend all your life on Netflix. I've watched every episode of everything that anyone has ever watched before. And when we leave here, I'll be binge-watching Netflix today. And on the way home, I'll pull it up on my phone so I can listen to it on my way home. Our desire to be entertained, our desire to feel pleasure. Let me give you a few things, and I want to close for today. Your shadow mission will always be centered around you. It will always be centered around you. Your shadow mission will not be focused on someone else. It will be about you. Now, there may be an object within your life, and you tend to focus on that object because by having peace with that person, somehow it makes you feel better about yourself. It's the idea that I want to be glorified, I want to be liked, and I want to avoid discomfort. Second thing is your shadow mission will always lead to brokenness and regret. This is the, this is the problem with the shadow mission. Is that it just is so enticing. And it lures us in. And at the end of the day, it is so disappointing that we feel betrayed that it didn't hold up to the things that we thought that it would hold up to. Some of the shadow missions I wrote down is, I will do anything for you to like me. You'll become anyone just so people will like you. You'll say whatever you have to say so people will like you. That is a terrible shadow mission. I have to be successful. We measure success in lots of different ways. We measure success in our house. Is my house bigger than yours? Is my car better than yours? Is my job title more important and more impressive than yours? Do I know more scripture than you do? Can I quote more scripture than you can? We, we find all kinds of ways to determine that we're more successful than someone else. And if this is yours, you will find that you see the faults of others very readily. Because there's no better way to demonstrate your own success by pointing out everybody else's failures. Is that your shadow mission? As long as I'm happy, nothing else matters. In the church, I only need God when I can't handle it myself. 
We see this in people when they come when things get rough and then they disappear when things get better and then they don't come back again until things get rough again. I only need God when I can't handle it myself. I already said this one. I'm a victim as long as I can blame somebody else. See, victims never take responsibility for their own health. It's always somebody else's fault. One of the things I love about how he describes shadow missions is he describes it not just in our own personal lives, but you can have a shadow mission at work. You can have a shadow mission in your family. You can have a shadow mission at church, which is what we are most interested in today. At business, what I've noticed in working with people is that there are a lot of people with the shadow mission. I'm going to work as little as possible and get paid more than I deserve. Somehow they feel are smarter, better, or I'm going to work smarter, not harder. I hate that phrase, by the way. If you're not working hard, then you're not trying. doesn't mean you've got to work yourself to death. So many people work as little as possible to get paid more than they deserve. A second one that I see is we may not be honest, but we drive better cars than you. If you're in the business world, you've seen that too. Some of our shadow missions in family is, I wrote this one down because I think we all struggle with this at some point. Our family mission, offending no one ever. I don't want to offend my kids, so I just won't hold them accountable. And then we wonder why we have such terrible relationships with our kids when they get older. Another one, I'd rather be your friend than your parent. In the church, maybe it, this is a little less personal, easier to grab onto these shadow missions. In the church, one that we struggle with often is this one. We are better Christians than you. Do we ever do that? No, we don't ever do that. Do we ever do that? Ever point out how other churches are wrong? They shouldn't be doing those things. Another one I wrote down is who needs God? Our programs are second to none. It's one of the things we're trying to change here. Our programs aren't the best in the city, but we're seeking God. This is another one that if you've been with us for a while, this is one that we have to constantly be vigilant about. And I, I'm convicted that at times we have succumbed to this shadow mission because we, we started this church so you could come however you are. If you're sick, you could come. If you didn't look healthy, you could come. If you didn't look like other church people, you could come. You, you could be with us. And so we love talking about being a church for sick people. But sometimes what we can fall into is, you know what? We're okay that we're not really healthy because we're reaching sick people. We're full of sick people, so we're okay with being sick. And people come in and they get stuck. And after years of being involved in ministry with us, their life doesn't change at all. That is a shadow mission to say, but they're sick. There's sick people in our church. All you other whitewashed Christians, you don't have sick people. We got sick people in our church. But if no one's moving from being sick to being well, what good is that? That they're sitting in our seats on Sunday morning. We're okay being sick as long as we welcome other sick people. That's not what Christ called us to. For me personally, I... 
I don't know, maybe some of these have touched on what maybe yours is. I, I'm giving you all of these because I want to just spur your imagination about what yours is. I came up with two that I believe are two of my top shadow missions. One is, I will try to make as many people happy as possible. I will. I'll try to make you happy. If this sermon was good for you, I feel good because I made you happy. If you want something from our church, I'll try to make it happen because I want you to be happy. And whenever I move outside of the mission God has given me, and I move that 10 degrees off course, I will move in this direction. I will try to make people happy. I'm guessing I'm not the only one in the room. The second one that I identified is I'm busy, so my life must matter. And I can just as easily move into that one and get full of all kinds of busy things to do. Because deep inside of me, my desire to feel valuable means if I'm busy, clearly I'm important. Now, do I like those? No. Do I intentionally act in those ways? No. Do you intentionally act in your shadow mission? Probably not. But it's where we default to when we're not moving in tandem with the Holy Spirit. Let me show you, share this last illustration with you, then we'll close. It's a story about Jesus, and it's Jesus showing us how we can fight our shadow mission. What does he do? This is in the timeline of Jesus. If you're not familiar with kind of the history of Jesus' ministry, there is a time where we see some, some information about Jesus. He's born, he's a child, he gets left at the temple, he's teaching in the temple. Then there's a period that we really don't see much about him. And then all of a sudden he arrives back on the scene several years later and he starts calling disciples. He goes and he visits the most popular evangelist at the time, which is John the Baptist, which we could just as easily have talked about shadow mission with John the Baptist because that's another guy that just completely ignored any shadow mission he may have. He gives, gives us one of the greatest um, responses to a shadow mission of self-importance than anyone in Scripture. And that verse is this, I must decrease so he can increase. That is what it means to be on mission. And boy, John the Baptist nailed it. So what this section that we come to in Jesus' life is right as Jesus goes and he visits John, and they know each other, but he visits John, John baptizes him, and then they have this incredible experience where you know, heavens open up and Holy Spirit comes down like a dove, and, and everybody's just, wow. And then Jesus leaves and goes into the desert. You've probably heard about Jesus in the desert. You may not know where in this timeline that that happened, but this is it. And this is Jesus and Satan. Satan trying to push Jesus onto a shadow mission. Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. That's why he was led up there. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Which, interestingly, the way that Matthew describes it, he's not tempted the whole 40 days. Satan waits until he's tired and hungry after 40 days. Which is generally, I find, when I'm most susceptible to the attacks of Satan. I'm tired. I'm wore out. And after fasting 40 days, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Shadow mission temptation number one, prove you're God. Prove you're better than everybody else. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. 
He puts the emphasis back on God the Father. Verse 5, Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. In other words, let's demonstrate how awesome you are in front of all these people. Don't come as a humble servant. Come out as this magnificent supernatural superhero. And the angels will come and scoop you up. And Jesus said to him, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Shadow mission of you can be worshipped and in charge. Which I always thought was kind of a terrible one because he's already God. I mean, what more can he do? If you'll worship me, you can be in charge of everything. And Jesus said to him, Be gone, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And the devil, then the devil left him. Behold, angels came down and were ministering to him. So I leave you with this until next week. You will be tempted with a shadow mission. I hope you've under, you understand that. My question is, will you seek truth before you seek escape? See, shadow mission is escape. It's escaping to what feels good, escaping to what feels natural, escaping from the difficult sometimes call of the Holy Spirit in your life. So I'm going to ask you this week to do some hard work. I'm going to ask you to try to analyze your motives. And I know that's tough. I don't like it. When I wrote these two down and I thought, gosh, I'm not going to tell them those were my shadow missions. When I really came face to face with the fact that those were my shadow missions, I was embarrassed. I was not happy about it. They aren't cool shadow missions. They're not the kind that it's like, you know, his worst stuff is like still pretty cool. That's not me. I'm embarrassed by my, my shadow missions are destructive and they're not something anybody wants to have. If you begin to stumble upon yours, you may feel the same way. You may become embarrassed. You may become angry. You may push back and say, that's not me. But something inside of you will say, this, this is you. One of the things that will happen when you hit your shadow mission is that you will not be able to deny it. You will know immediately. That's it. That's it. I don't like it, but that's it. The reason I want you to do this homework is because you can't make any progress until you know what it is. Now, you may not actively be doing that. You may not be actively on a shadow mission. You may be right where the Holy Spirit wants you right now. But think back through your life. You've been on shadow mission at times. and Try to understand what that is. Next week, next week we're going we're gonna to... Turn up the heat a little bit on this conversation. I'm going to share another story with you. I want to talk about why this is important. Not just what is it, but why is this important? And so I hope that you'll come back and you'll hang out with us for the rest of this series. I'm going to pray with you. If you're struggling with yours, you know what yours is right now, and you'd like to just come up here and pray, then, then the altar's open. If you, if you just need to pray and you need to get out of your seats and come down, you can do that. Whatever, I'm going to pray that you have an experience with the Holy Spirit this week that is undeniable. Would you pray with me? Father God, I thank you. 
that you love us and that you have called us according to your purpose even when we are not capable of doing this on our own. Father, I pray for those in this room and they are struggling with their shadow mission. They are feeling hopeless and frustrated. They're feeling that sense of soul dissatisfaction. It just says this is not the way that life is supposed to be. I pray that you would open their hearts and their minds so that they could could define very clearly what their default shadow mission is, the thing that they fall back into, whether it's comfort, whether it's self-glory and tearing everyone else down around them, whether it's other people noticing them and how great they are, whatever it is, God, I pray that you will make it clear and that we would know this so that we can stay on mission with you. Father, there are so many people that are hurting. Our world is in, in chaos, and you are still the answer. Father, I pray that we would not be a people that just reacts to what's going on in the world, but we would be proactive with the gospel in our lives going out into this world. I pray as these terrible things happen in our world, like what happened in Las Vegas last weekend, you would give us wisdom to speak words of peace and hope and health into people who are hurting and discouraged. Father, I pray that if we're discouraged in this room, you would encourage us that we are with you. We get to walk with you. You have promised us your Holy Spirit to guide us and to lead us through all things in life and to experience your presence every day. Father, help us to experience you this week. And I do pray that you would give us a clear sense of what our default shadow mission is. Let us be at least aware of what's going on in our hearts so that we can build our character over our giftedness. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.